Hello and welcome to another episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm your host, joined by my blue collar badass, Matt. How's it going, man? Things are good, Dylan. Weather's warm and, you know, construction's booming. It's been a been a hot minute since you and I sat down, you know, across the mics to do this together. So I'm good to be back. <laughs> Likewise, man. I've been traveling and seeing uh, tower cranes all over the place. Uh was in San Francisco and there was a I was on the 21st floor of the hotel I was staying at and I wasn't even eye level with the tower crane, uh, for the boom. Like <laughs> I saw the picture you posted, man. That, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was talking with somebody recently. Um, we were down in Detroit for a baseball game or something and they've got some cranes up down there and I, I'm not afraid of heights. I never have been. I used to build houses, right. I can walk on roofs that are, 30, 40 feet up with no issue, but I, I can't even fathom climbing up into one of those cranes. I can't even imagine <laughs> doing it for the first time, you know? Yeah. I mean, you think about like how tall that has to be. Um, Cause this was still in like a fairly open site. Like they, I mean, they had maybe a couple floors done, but still like a pretty open site for where the crane was sitting versus like the ones that are on top of like mostly completed buildings, you know? Um, just figure let's just say it's 25 floors at you know 10 feet minimum you know floor probably more like 14 probably yeah you're like you're looking 350 375 <laughs> just like <laughs> stupid high you know of like and there's nothing between outside of the cage that you're crawling up in you know there's nothing between you and like the outside world <laughs> yeah and then you're up there for your eight hours, nine hour shift, whatever it is. Like, I don't know. I, I don't think I could do it, but it, it's cool. You know, you got to applaud those, those men and women that do it. Oh yeah. Like, and then the, I mean, and they've become again, like significantly more advanced in uh, recent years, but think of like where they had to do all the balance and load calcs like on the fly, basically to figure out where to put weights to, for whatever they're lifting oh yeah i mean if you think about it even on a rudimentary level the physics involved and what you, what those things are doing it's it's mind-boggling you you can't you can't get off kilter on a load that you're lifting 300 some feet up into the air right there's obvious disastrous implications there so it's pretty significant yeah and a pinpoint uh you know beam basically or pinpoint yeah. structured point <laughs> yeah yeah let alone the fact that they can't the operator can't see what he's doing you know most of the time they're op they're basing it ba on on radio communication with somebody on the ground or somebody at each different you know level of the building <laughs> yeah it's i mean it's still good to see like even in San Francisco, as much of a shithole as that place has turned into, like, <laughs> I've, I mean, I've never really historically liked it, but it, the city was never like dirty. Um, you know, you go back five years, 10 years, especially like it was, it was nice. Um, but it's good to see like that type of construction, you know, still being put up, that type of investment still being done. I mean, cause that, that building with that type of tower crane in and we were like right downtown so we were probably like four blocks from like salesforce tower you know it's probably a 
300 plus million dollar build you know (laughs) it's i don't i i truly don't know how big that's gonna be but any skyscraper it's gonna be let's just say nine figures (laughs) worth of construction yeah to put it up do you know what it's going to be or who's building it uh swinerton's building it um at least that's whose name was on the tower crane um and then I don't know. I didn't look up what it's going to be yet. Um, we were in like a hotel area and district, so could be anything. Yeah. So without getting too far down the political rabbit hole, is is San Fran really as big of a literal shithole as the rest of the country makes it out to be? I've never personally been there ever, but, you know, you hear yeah. the stories. <clears throat> so it's... Yeah. I mean, like homeless people are a problem, you know, a lot of mental illness. We went to like um, some of the parks in the like downtown area that historically, like I remember going there for, um, so in 2019, we went there for, or that area for the Harry Potter play, like the Broadway show, because it came to San Francisco, uh, which was actually like really cool. And it was like a full, like it was a long ass deal like like a six hour thing or something like it was holy crap like it was a full like you know they had intermission you went and like did some shit like ate dinner kind of thing like it was a full like thing Um, oh wow yeah it was i mean it was pretty cool actually to like go and see it and because i'd really never i've never done broadway in like new york or anything um so to go and like see some of these like they're just incredibly long um but one of the parks like down there, and again, this was around Christmas time was, you know, very well like lit, um, had a bunch of like Christmas decorations. They did everything like was in like, just, it was cool like to go see and you didn't sure. feel like, you know, and this is like kind of the, an uppity place, like the Apple stores right across the like uh, square from this park, like a lot of very high end like fashion stuff um is there you know tiffany is there like so it's it's not cheap uh real estate or place to be and it was again even 2019 like great it was christmas uh so it was cold but like it was a like you didn't see like any really problems and i remember being in the city like uh that same time frame 1920 like walking around and you didn't see like there was some you know homelessness and people that like had mental problems where they're just like yelling at nobody but now going around like it was much worse and then you had like people that cleaning off the sidewalks of like all the shit or whatever uh in the mornings and granted some areas are worse than others like the financial district was is clean like i think they probably pay to kick everybody out and move them to other places right uh, it's just how it works so like because when we walked around like the financial area like i walked around like where the stock exchange was or just happened to like be in that area or whatever and there was no problems but you go you know three blocks the other way uh to where nobody's paying to like move people um it was much worse so hmm. um I've always just never liked going into the city. Like there's always a, it's a weird vibe going into San Francisco. Uh, the rest of the Bay area though, like super nice. Like I went to Vallejo to see some clients and like Vallejo's on the top side of the Bay. So you've got like the Bay bridge and San Francisco's on the peninsula. Right. So you have, and then you have the uh, golden gate bridge. Uh, 
it goes north and the Bay Bridge goes over to Oakland. Uh, but Vallejo sits like on the north side and you could take a ferry. It's the San Francisco ferry from Vallejo, which is an old army base. And I was talking to the guy there and apparently they had, um, or his CEO had worked there during the war. And one of the bombs that landed in Hiroshima was actually like assembled there in Vallejo um, oh, wow. <laughs> for like history. Like it was all, all these old Barbie barracks and stuff because it's an island. Um, but then the ferry like goes across and that place was like beautiful, like had a cool vibe to it. Like the energy was just very, very different. Um, so like other parts of the Bay, like are, are fine. Like I go to Oakland, which Oakland has a like historically bad, like context just because of gangs and everything else. Um, Easy. From, yeah. From like 30 years ago, like Oakland was a place like you just didn't, didn't go. Um, now like it's, it's fine. Like there's so much money that has been like put into there, you know, which just with people traveling to the Bay and San Francisco or whatever that, I've never had any problems like in Oakland um, and you just, the energy level is very different there. And same with like San Jose and like other um, places around the Bay. Like you go down to Palo Alto with Stanford, like very, very different um, like energy level versus, you know, San Francisco proper. Gotcha. Well, I'm not looking to go there anytime soon. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, also for you, it's a very different type of construction. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Than Michigan. Yeah. yeah. We were, we were just up in Traverse city for the, I, I don't know, a week or so ago now, but just a, such a cool vibe up there, you know, to see that area and, and that's booming. I mean, there's construction all over right now and it's obviously very different than, you know, big city construction, but, you know, we had the boys with us and, you know, taking them out to the, there's some breweries and like pizza shacks that just, it's just a cool kind of youthful, fun, friendly vibe. And my kids numerous times just kept saying, you know, everybody's so nice up here. Everybody, like people are talkative, they're smiling. So it's just, uh, that's, that's our cup of tea. That's where, where I'll go hang out. You can keep San Fran. <laughs> yeah. We'll spend a lot of time up in Traverse. Uh, like Lauren's grandparents live over in Empire, over like right down the road from Sleeping Bear Dunes. So we spend nice. a decent amount of time up in that neck of the woods. I, uh, my eldest son convinced me to climb the Sleeping Bear this time, and we did it, man. And holy crap, <laughs> it's a, it's interesting. If you've never been there, it's first of all, it's I absolutely gorgeous, but climbing on dunes, like it's nuts we looked up the stats and the actual, the physics on it for every 12 inches, you step up, you compact the sand down, uh, eight and a half inches. So for every step you take, you're getting like basically less than a third of the, of the production out of your effort. And people don't realize that. And like, it's a three mile hike from where we parked to get to Lake Michigan. And you, you know, you're up and down, up and down and you get to the end of this thing and you're, I don't know, 200 feet above the lake and it's just it's straight down and i'm like all right forget it guys that, that ain't happening they the three boys went all the way down jumped in the lake came and came all the way back up that thing carrie and i sat on the top and just kind of laughed at them but it's uh it's definitely a cool area if you've never been there yeah and that's all around like like michigan i remember doing some of that in like the up like I've seen some guys do exactly that, like climb down, you know, two, 300 feet to the lake and then come back up. And it's just like, 
I'm, I'm, I went down like a hundred feet and that was a lot of work. Yeah. It's brutal. <laughs> Your legs are on fire. It was windy as shit up there too. So you can't, can't really see anything. You're getting pelted with sand if you look the wrong way, <laughs> but it's all good. So what are uh, we talking about today, man? Today, I wanted to really just cruise, cruise the news a little bit and pick up some kind of top of mind topics that um, are really kind of eating some of the, the firms these days. Um, pair a little bit of construction dive with um, and some other news articles with uh, the Delta Clarity Report, as Delta does for those of you guys that don't know, uh, they do a big survey every year for any firms. So this is you know the primary like accounting software too that most any firms use. So they they have a lot of good data and information, and it's a trusted like source basically within the AE community. Um, and this year they have 540 firms that uh, basically came in and, and reported to Deltec like their findings, what they want to see. Um, so this is pretty accurate information um, across you know the U.S. and there's six percent of Canada in here, which take that for what it is. But um, 94 percent uh, from the U.S. and six percent from Canada, with you know 540 plus firms participating in the study. So, I mean, and then it's basically split, split pretty evenly across small, medium, and large firms, uh, and large is over 250 people. So, um, first thing that I want to like bring up and, and start with is, so some good news is across all the firms, 17.6% increase in net revenue forecast, which is the highest in 10 years. So that's super good news. I mean, you're seeing it. There's a lot of people that are seeing huge revenue uh, increases and just big numbers put up on the board uh, more than they've ever seen. But on the other side of that is 13.6% employee turnover increase across all firms. <laughs> so more work, less people. That's the, the name of the game these days, right? So that 17% forecast, when is that forecasted out to, does it say? it? So it's on like, I think net billables. So like the architecture billing index score for December rose to 51, a six point increase from 44.9 in January, 2021. Um, so I think it's over the next year. It's probably okay. pipeline for the next, for 2022. So 17% boost in, in revenue is, is huge. I mean, that's, that's great to see. And, and yeah, we're, we're seeing, you know, similar, if not, even bigger numbers in these parts of the woods, but a 13, 14% reduction in, in manpower and staffing, you know, what do we do to combat this? So these were like the big things that Delta talked about, you know, the, basically the, the executive summary is being strategic about opportunities. Like I've heard a lot of firms um, just, turn down work because they can't handle it in the timeframes that they're talking about. Um, closing the talent, skills, and technology gaps uh, to deliver su successful projects. So part of this is in shortening the skills gap is a lot of training, which we know firms are uh, historically very bad at training people, bringing them up to speed. Um, the next piece is addressing near-term labor challenges require firms to invest strategically and purposefully, whatever that means, uh, from Deltec. 
And then expansion of KPIs will allow firms to combine uh, retrospective and forward-looking measurements. Again, nobody really knows what that means. And firms must continue to leverage technology to reduce the cost of time-intensive and manual tasks is the fifth uh, point for Dell Tech. So I think at the end of the day, it's going after work strategically, uh, which has always been something that I've kind of seen within firms is they go after everything, even if they have like a 0% chance of winning it, which then just makes you look like a loser in front of that client. Um, and then they, they don't ever train. I think that's number two. Um, Cause how are you going to shorten a skills gap? If you don't train your people to, to do anything, you're trying to rely on university or trade school or whatever, especially in the design community to like do this stuff or somebody that's gung-ho and like learns it on their own, but you're not going to pay them anymore. Um, Near-term labor challenges. I, I really like outside of training your people, that's really the best thing you can do for that. And then um, expansion of key performance indicators and KPIs, like nobody measures anything anyway. So like you'd have to, <laughs> I mean, it's a revamp of complete culture um, and then to invest in like technology to, to do it. I mean, that's the technology is the, quickest easiest off the shelf way to do most of this training is like hard it takes time and it's like actual work and effort to revamp your culture um kpis like you don't know what you need to measure anyway and from a historical standpoint like you know productivity or any of those measures the only way you're going to do it is with training and technology <laughs> to increase productivity like you can measure it but the only way you're going to improve it is training and technology like using software to do more um I mean, those are like the things that I see. And then strategic opportunities, that's always been something that like I've uh, pushed is a lot of firms go after anything and everything. And instead they leave out like, what's your chances of success, you know? Yeah, they, they leave out chance of success and they leave out, you know, the culture of the projects that you want to work on. And you see it, we see the same thing on our side of the table in the in the construction world. You got big firms who are still just gobbling up every single project they can find, you know, whether it's a, a high rise building or a doghouse, and, you know, it, it just breeds this, this culture of this, this kind of indecent proposal that we, we don't really give a shit what we're doing. We're just going to feast and feast and feast until, until we can't anymore. And I, I guess it's a fine way to do business, but it, it certainly dilutes the, the enjoyment factor of, of the people that work for you that are actually having to create these things, whether it's designing it or, or building it, I think. Yeah. Well, on the, I mean, this goes for anything, but on the design side, like it's in deliverability of drawings, right? So you have a client that's cheap, doesn't want to pay for anything like they're, you know, bottom dollar. Well, the drawings shouldn't be as detailed <laughs> for that as they should for a client that's going to pay, you know, top dollar to detail all this stuff out. Like, cause that's just what they pay for, but nobody really understands that. So then you'd end up dealing with it later down the road anyway. Um, and the, it ruins, you know, bottom lines for design firms. So what you're saying is read your contracts and read your proposals. Yeah. I mean that too, but it's just like, you know, you, there needs to be different levels of deliverable for different clients. You know, if you're not going to pay for, you know, a high level BIM model, or you don't think that that's worth anything, then like you get what you get kind of deal. 
Um, it still needs to be buildable, but at the same time, like, you know, you need to pay for design. And I think a lot of people always like do that out. It's just like in what you do and on the pre-con side, like if that isn't done, you know, well, you can expect your project to not go well. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it takes a lot of communication on, on both sides to, to understand actually what you're being asked for and, and what you're going to be provided. You know, so some, some projects don't need that level of detail. They just don't, but certainly other projects would. And if you're not real specific and real clear and having those conversations ahead of time, then it's just going to, you know, breed animosity and chaos after the fact. Yeah. And like within inside like design firms, you know, those conversations and what's in the contracts don't always get like, you know, drilled down to the people doing the actual work. So that's, you know, it's going to be an ongoing problem. Nobody reads their contracts. They don't know what's in them. Um, and then they find out in court, which is never the place you want to like find out about any of that. <laughs> no, no, that is not a good spot for uh, surprises to come up. Yeah. And so to pair the Dell Tech stuff and kind of the executive summary pieces with, you know, the latest, it's the number one piece on construction dive is tech skill proficiency drops significantly in 2021 report says, um, that's oh, no the- shit. <laughs> why, why might that be? I mean, it, it, it just goes back to training, right? There's no, there's no training into, you know, leadership management skills, um, into data technology, like it's, or it says that leadership and management skills proficiency in the U S are up, which I don't, uh, I don't know what they're judging it on. Um, and then technology and data science skills proficiency drop significantly, I guess this is to a Coursera report. So people are basically learning more about leadership and management and less about technology and data science to do actual things. So, you know, it's focused to human skills and soft skills, uh, project management and decision-making versus like the actual hard science of doing anything. And then, they say that, you know, automation are mandating stronger investments in human capital uh, as institutions must prioritize developing the high demand digital and human skills required to build a competitive and equitable workforce. Uh, and this is all from Coursera. So basically at the end of the day, people are learning uh, soft skills, which I think is good by and large, but at the same time, um, you need hard skills to like actually get the work done. Yeah, you gotta be able to produce something. And not, not just, I mean, the, the soft skills are good. You need them, but like you said, you need a healthy balance of, of both. Yeah. And then I think there's probably two things going into this. I mean, you could see it from the, you know, other stats of 17% increase in work. So they need more people and then more people are either leaving the workforce or deciding to do other things and not work 90 hour weeks um, or 60 hour weeks to, for some of these firms. So that's like the other side of it is you have this high turnover rate or where you can go to, you know, companies like Salesforce or whatever work in Texas and not California and earn, you know, double whatever you were making somewhere else. So, I mean, it, it just boils down to, to culture again, right? If, if you're not going to invest in your people, 
but you're going to expect them to invest back in you and to devote all this time and, and energy, you know, how do you, it, it can't sustain and it, it hasn't been sustaining, you know, it, it's, it's amazing when you go out there and you, everyone you talk to is talking about labor shortages and it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. Why do we have this? Where the hell do all these people go? Like there's not that many that have retired, but if you can't do anything to attract and keep and keep happy, the ones that are still willing and able to work, you're going to die in the vine. Yeah. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. One is, you know, exactly what you're talking about, the culture. Cause if you look back to uh, like company towns, right. So for logging, for mining, for a lot of these very big industries, they had company towns, right. The company built all their housing, they built, you know, the whole town basically and took care of everybody. And, you know, not to say that like, conditions were ideal by any means in these like hard communities but for like that time period like it was pretty good you know they they did get taken care of you know it was a a job and a way to earn a living that you didn't have to worry about like other basic needs like you didn't have to worry about your house payment you didn't have to worry about uh like where your next meal was coming from necessarily like the company took care of a lot of things and then you have now the full one, any of that where like, Hey, you're on your own, you know, we're not, we're not even going to give you a retirement like benefits, you know, your pension went away. Like you get, you do your own 401k, you do your own stuff, you take care of your own things. And it got flipped to the individual and most people like, frankly, it's a lot of stuff to like take care of, right? Like figuring out where to live, like what type of house. And then most people are real bad with money you know, and end up upside down in a lot of things and can't, you know, they don't like the average American, I think doesn't have, you know, a thousand bucks in their checking account. So you have like this huge flip in, in loyalty from the companies and the people, um, like what else would you expect to, to happen? So you go from like company town to that type of culture. Um, and there's ways to embed like the company town mentality uh, and like, we take care of our people. We do a lot for them. Like, you know, they're our neighbors. We help everybody out uh, to, you know, the current environment of you have your own 401k and all that stuff. You choose where you live, that kind of thing. Um, but it goes into, yeah, I mean, culture is like the core building block for all of this that I think we, it's a lot of work, man. <laughs> well, I think that's just it. People talk about culture a lot, but actually creating and maintaining a culture is a shit ton of work and it takes constant effort. And, and it's not just from one person or, you know, a couple people on the top. It's, it has to be ingrained so far in every single person in your organization that, that the culture itself becomes kind of like an entity, right? That, that everyone's working and feeding it and, and doing the same thing for, for the betterment of the group. And I think a lot of people fall flat on that because, it's real easy to, you know, point to core values on your wall and say, well, we, we have a great culture here. Come work for us, blah, 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 blah. But actually creating that and fostering it and helping it to grow and sustain, it takes a lot of work. And people don't like a lot of work. They want the easy way out. They want quick and flashy, you know, the next shiny object syndrome. And I think we're seeing it now more than ever. Now that the, the labor force is getting taxed, you know, proverbially, it's it's harder than ever to attract and maintain especially good people and 
you can't do it without being willing and able to put in the work that it takes on this this kind of back end fluffy stuff. Yeah, and if you listen back to like the episode we did with Zach, you know, he's like, we're in the we're in the building business, you know, and it's not just in steel, it's in people. And if you actually take that mentality to everything that you do, right, and building people up and helping people to become the best versions of themselves, you're going to have a lot of loyalty. I mean, that's why, you know, his average person is like five years. You know? yeah. <laughs> like you have loyalty when you're in the building people business, you know, and helping them out or giving them more skills or walking them through stuff. You know, you, you gain a tremendous amount of loyalty in helping people become better. And when you're not bitter about them leaving for a different or better opportunity that you just couldn't give them, like that goes a long way too. And people see it, you know, people talk like, nothing ever happens in a vacuum yeah and, and he he nailed it in in his interview or our interview with him and that's why we titled that episode that well done is better than well said i've i love that line and it's it's true in so many different facets of business and life you can talk a good talk but unless you're actually doing it and doing what it takes to back it up you won't see those results period yeah. <clears throat> right and like so one of the next articles here is in Illinois heavy machinery workers strikes uh, slows concrete production. You know, like it's not, it's just unfair labor practices is what they're like citing. It's not even work. It's not even hours. It's not um, anything like that. 300 heavy equipment operators in Northwest Illinois went on strike over alleged unfair business practices by three employers. Um, I'm not going to name them here, but members of the local 150 um, ceased work on June 7th at over 30 quarries and mines in Northern Illinois. So this is all aggregate material, with sand, gravel, crushed stone, which is vital for concrete, rock, road base, <laughs> you name it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff those go into. Um, and now it's impacting everybody else because without concrete, you can't really do anything else uh, on the project. So, um, I mean, you're seeing basically a lot of this um, going on, just unfair labor practices um, and you got strike for, and only 300 people basically is gonna shut down all of Chicago construction. And it won't just stay in Chicago. You know, people don't, people gloss over stories like this because, well, I'm far enough away. That doesn't affect me. Bullshit. In today's construction world, in our current supply chain mess, it it has a ripple effect that will reach out very, very far from, from the epicenter there in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, so seven mines for aggregate production. I mean, that's fairly big. I don't know what their tonnage is, but um like that's a lot of mines to shut down for sand aggregate and gravel. Um, so that's anything from road base to concrete to, um, I mean, sand goes into a lot of stuff, um, depending on what they're doing, it could go for fracking and the type of sand that they're doing, uh, it could go into oil production. Um, there's a lot of sand that's using that stuff. And then any other aggregate pieces, um, I'm not sure what else their aggregates go to, but any road construction is going to be slowed down uh, because of it. And then obviously concrete and cement. Yeah. And I mean, just, just think of the ripple road construction slows down. So 
transportation slows down. So delivery of goods slows down, costs continue to go up. I mean, it's, we're allowing ourselves to stay right inside the perfect storm. And if we don't do anything about it, it's just going to keep going until either the, the, you know, we come completely off the rails uh, or something even worse happens. Yeah. And it's again, like a small number of people, you know, have a big ripple for what they do. Um, just in mining, you don't need a million people to, to do it with the machinery and equipment that we have today to pull rock out of the ground. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and to be fair, I haven't done any reading into this other than right now when I'm looking at it, you know, I'm not also suggesting that these people are hundred percent in the right, that it is, you know, completely unfair and some horrible labor practice. There's probably, there's probably about a 50% truth on both sides is usually what it turns out to be. You know, the, oh, yeah. the, the, the local 150, let, let's be real too. All right. They, they're going to glom on to and make it as bad as they possibly can. Cause they're also having ripple effects of their own with decreased membership over the last decade and, and things like that. So I don't want to come off saying that I, I completely believe it, but I think it's just a general conversation that you got to be able to meet in the middle. And if you can't, you're going to start seeing more of this sort of stuff. Yeah. Like here's the thing saying they're the local 150 uh, or the CAAPA also alleged unfair labor practices by local 150 saying they refused to meet for a new contract and ignoring requests until the contract expired on April 30th. So, I mean, there's, a lot of they're all they're all playing the game <laughs> yeah yeah so but the point more so is that you know you don't see these things where people are treated well where their culture is strong um you don't see like these strikes in strong cultures in good communities and things where employers have gone above and beyond to provide training, to provide advancement, to really build up their people. Like you don't see that ever in those types of corporations. You really only see it in places that like, you know, they've been taking advantage of us for a very long time. We've been working 60 hour weeks for five years with no overtime. Like that, those are the stories that you hear. And, you know, then people eventually reach their breaking point and say, you know, that's <laughs> enough. Which really uh, dovetails into um, our last article for today is architects, builders want to collaborate, but don't see eye to eye on what that means is the headline here, which I would agree in principle with this headline. <laughs> um, this has been, a, I think, a topic of conversation for a very long time. Uh, but here's like the top uh, kind of debrief. So contractors and architects agree they want to collaborate more, though too often clash on issues such as material substitutions. Uh, and that's released by AIA. And then less than a fifth of architects believe contractors propose material substitutions or other changes to serve the client's best interests. Contractors indicate they serve, uh, they best serve clients through ensuring projects stay within their schedule and budget. Port found. About half of architects who responded to AIA's survey believe the architect has the majority of responsibility to make decisions in the best interest of the client. By contrast, 88% of contractors said they share the responsibility equally. All right, what do we got on this? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you could get me fired up pretty quick on this one. Um, let's start from the bottom. Um, 
as far as who has the majority responsibility to make decisions in the best interest of the client, that's that's going to be dictated by how your firm is set up. For for us, what we do, we have a hundred percent of that responsibility in the in the true design build, you know, arena. If if you're a contractor who is strictly, uh, you know, low bid, hard bid, then it probably does shift uh, drastically back to the architect. Um, you know, and really that's the answer to all these questions is who, what kind of contractual setup is there? Who's actually on the team, quote unquote. And, you know, I, I have these problems with our architects all the time, especially now more than ever, right? We're dealing with an issue, a, a, an argument, not really an issue, but a disagreement right now where uh, my architect wants a certain style of light fixture in a project we're building. My electrician came to me and said, Matt, there's there's no way we can make that work. Either we can't get it or it's going to blow the budget. Here are some alternatives. And we're kind of meeting in the middle of this, this crunch fest because the architect's saying, well, no, this is lesser quality and they're not going to like it. The electrician's saying they need to be able to afford it. It's going to provide the services they need. And, you know, in this instance, it's left with me as being the the referee and ultimately it'll be my decision at the end of the day. But, you know, this is a very common, common thing. And I think, you know, we've talked about the, the conflict that is the arc, the, the relationship between the architect and the builder for well, two years now, right. <laughs> there's, there's an old school way of handling this and there's a better way of handling this. And I think that latter part I just mentioned would solve everything this article talks about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that I always come back to is we don't like the design community is ignorant to cost. Like that is the key. <clears throat> so if something can keep the project on schedule, budget, whatever, especially in the like supply chain problems that we have, like, can you make a substitution that's fairly equal? And I think that where a lot of this has come down is, um, and I was just thinking about this the other day is like, I've personally never been sued or had to go to court, right. In construction, it's always been the fear of being sued or brought to court or the fear of litigation or the fear of whatever else, like none of my projects has ever gone that far to where I've had to like go into it. I've had a lot of like mediations around things, but I've never actually had to go to court, but we get so scared and, pushed down like through the old timers that maybe they have, maybe they haven't, you know, ever like had to go to court and deal with all these things, but it's something that we always like talk about or joke about in what has happened. And I think the same thing in a lot of this is, you know, there might've been one old guy at one point that actually got screwed on a substitution for something. Right. Um, and then they blow it up for the next 30 years of their career saying that like we never substitute anything and it takes it to like the extreme edge or that like you know from the contractor's perspective that like you know some architects screwed them on something and held them to like what the contract actually says and they didn't like it you know thinking they could have subbed something out right and i think that's where a lot of this stems from is some old guy got screwed once and then bitches about it for the next 30 years and then the new guys coming in think that this happens all the time when that's not actually the case. So I think there's a lot of like just bad historical baggage to a lot of these things. Not that some of them aren't valid, but that 
we complain about things that don't actually <laughs> happen all that often or isn't the end of the world. Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of like the last article, you know, it's, if you really peel away the onions, the, the onion layers, it's probably a 50, 50 split of, of who's to blame, who's at fault and how can we actually fix it? Which I guess in essence is the, what the article started with, right. That we're all looking for ways to better collaborate and, sit at the same damn table instead of having this constant finger pointing. Cause I, I can tell you, man, right now it is, it, this industry is not for the weak of heart. We are seeing still at least monthly increases on everything. And if it's not 10%, it's 40%. And, and they're coming in with no warning with like no notice, no nothing, no options. And if you can't pivot and get with your people, whether it's your architect or your builder or your, your specialty contractors, um, you're going to fail. We have to be able to act and react very quickly. And, you know, things like substitutions, that's not, it's no longer like the GC trying to save a buck or squeeze an extra ounce in, in his bottom line. It's okay. We're trying to survive. We, this project will die if we don't, fix this light fixture issue or whatever it may be. I mean, it's, it's every day and it's, it's crazy. And it's, you know, it's, it's going to have probably good consequences that come out of it. And it's going to weed out the weak, but you know, our show and what we're talking about here is trying to prevent that from happening for the, for the people who are listening, because the people listening to this show are, are going to be typically the stronger, the ones that want to be better, the ones that want to survive whatever this world is throwing at us. And here's a great way to do it learn how to collaborate, learn how to sit down and talk with everyone that should be at that round table. Yeah. Picking up the phone will get you a long way, you know, to solving a lot of this and, you know, working through what, what collaboration really means, you know, whether that's on models, like I was talking to a guy the other day on um, models and the architect he was working with. Um, so he's an owner's rep. And then the, to make this project work and be it on budget and push the schedule like the owner wants, you know, they need to bring subs on board and trades on board and contractors on board like now in, you know, early <clears throat> design documents so that they can get everything in and, and going and the architects pushing back like, no, man, we can't do that until CDs. It's like, then it's too late to make most of the changes that you need to make for design to bring this thing on schedule and budget. Like there's no, you have to bring it all the trades in sooner to make that happen. Like there's no way to, to expedite this without doing that. And they just don't get it. You know, they want to push back on the way that they've always done things. And some of that is, again, I think the fear around like who controls, who's responsible, you know, when something breaks, who's going to be at fault for it. I think this is a wonderful commercial for true design build construction. <laughs> and that's, that in essence is, is what design build is. It's, it's forming a team early. And what you just said, we're seeing that those teams, they can't any longer just be the architect and the owner or the architect and the contractor. It's, it's growing and growing and growing. And that's the only way we're going to survive this mess that we're living through right now. Cause it's not, I mean, you can make changes on the fly. We do it all the time. You have to, however, if you don't have that relationship built from the very jump, the very beginning, you know, I, my architect needs to be able to rely on me as much as he needs to be able to rely on my electrician and 
vice versa on all those different channels. You know, it, it's a big spider web and we're all on the same team. We're all pushing towards the same goal. And if, if you have one facet of that, that's not, not working or isn't, you know, wanting to change the way they do things because the old way is what they, whatever. Well, you got to make some tough calls in. And usually it means get rid of that, that one group or that one individual that doesn't want to play on the team. Well, and you're going to reduce change orders. You're going to like, because everybody's on the same page, like you're less likely also to have like the finger pointing contest of doing whatever. Cause again, everybody collaborated on the drawings up front. You're going to have less errors and omissions. You're going to have less change orders. You're going to have less problems on the project. You know, not that they don't come up in unexpected and unforeseen conditions, but by and large, like it's probably going to be less risk on the architect too, for, you know, everything that they do. For sure. And the owner is involved in that. The owner is at that table too, you know? So everybody with every shred of risk in this whole game are all sitting down at the, the table or all sitting down in the zoom meeting and everyone knows what everyone else's role is and how, how we can collectively move this over the, the touchdown line. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been a big proponent for it for a long time. Like it's the only way to bring everybody to the table and, you know, structure the contracts and everything so that everybody wins. Yeah. It's what we do here, right? This is a, this is really design build at its core is, is the engineer sitting down with the builder and, and hashing out through all the details and figuring out the best way to approach these things. And I, you could, this could be a four hour podcast before too long. <laughs> well, in, I guess I'll wrap or I'll summarize my part and then let you chime in, Matt. But like at the end of the day, I mean, this comes down to culture. Like it's, it's all the things we've been talking about for a long time. You know, like you've got to invest in your people. You've got to invest in technology to increase your productivity. You've got to train your people, spend some time with them, build them up. Like that's the, I mean, it's the long and the short of it, right? Is to, if you train your people, they're going to stay longer. They're going to be better at it. You're going to have better relationships with your clients and partners and vendors and everybody else involved. And if you bring in technology to help you do more work, well, you're going to be more productive. Your people are going to be happier. And at the end of the day, you're going to get more done. Like, and then you can deal with the 17% increase in projects pretty easily because you're prepared for it with the systems processes and tools to help you get more done in less time. And then at the end of the day, if you go after the right projects with the right people on and the right partners, you're going to be a more successful organization. Like, but it all starts with culture and investing in the right tools to help you do more work in less time. Like that is the core of everything. And it's not rocket science. Like culture takes far longer, you know, that's a year's you know, thing to like turn it around and get it done. Like that's a 24 month, you know, push. But after that, and then it's, you know, maintenance mode, which isn't as big a push, but it's still like daily effort. And from the 24 months of hard pushing, like it's, you're now in the habit of talking about culture doing all those things. So it's not going to be as hard and, and uh, for you to do, but the first six months are going to be incredibly hard and people aren't going to believe you. But after that, it gets, you know, significantly easier. And I'm guessing that's from your experience too. And 
turning the culture ship around absolutely man it's like the difference of of building your truck from scratch and now we're at the point where you just got to make sure you do oil changes and put air in the tires you know every every once in a while but it's a grind it's a grind and you got to commit to it and it's a it's a culture internally it's a culture externally it has to to permeate everything about your business from the way you sell the way you recruit the way you operate it has to be everything or else it won't work and it's a hard thing to get through people's heads but you know you you just capped it off perfectly it's a lot of work once you're once you get over that once you get over the top of that sand dune you know you just got to make sure that you're staying upright and not not rolling with that guys that's going to be this episode of the construction corner podcast thank you so much for listening thank you for tuning in to matt and i um bringing you these shows every week we don't advertise don't do any of that stuff so you know go ahead share the show you know spread the word on building cultures within your uh companies you know if you need to share this with upper management any of those people to let them hear in on what we're saying and let us take the arrows for you but more than happy to do that so again thank you guys for listening so much appreciate you and we'll talk to you next time